Underwriting for the production of AutoLine this week has been provided by... AutoLine is brought to you in part by the commercial vehicle brands of Tenneco. Pioneering global ideas for cleaner air and quieter, smoother, and safer transportation. Warner, developing advanced technologies specifically aimed at reducing emissions, increasing fuel economy, and improving performance. Our award-winning innovations extend from turbocharging and cooling systems to friction materials and diesel cold start technology. Built on a century-long reputation of innovation and reliability, we have the track record that proves our technology can help meet the challenges of the commercial truck and off-highway industry. Deloitte's Automotive Group is at the forefront, driving transformation and tackling complex challenges. Whether you are interested in globalizing operations, optimizing supply chains, mitigating enterprise risk, or driving innovation, Deloitte can help develop solutions that create long-lasting value. To learn more about Deloitte's Automotive Group, visit us online at Deloitte.com US backslash automotive. Here is your host, John McElroy. Want to thank you for joining us on AutoLine this week. We're my special guest today, coming to you from the TU Telematics Conference just outside Detroit. My special guest is David Strickland, now a partner with the law firm Venerable LLP, also the former administrator of NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic, no, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. You got it. David, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me oh, today. Oh, no, thank you for the opportunity. Great to be here. I got so many different things I want to talk to you about, but let's dive into probably the biggest automotive safety recall of all time, this Takata airbag thing. What's your take on this? I mean, how did this thing just spin so out of control where I think we're up to 33 million vehicles being recalled? It's an extraordinary recall. It's an extraordinary circumstance where you have one supplier of a very critical part, the, um, you know, the inflator, which is across so many manufacturers and so many models within the manufacturing community. And which really is new ground for the manufacturers and for, or for my old agency, NHTSA. And I think it's excellent that the manufacturers are taking so much of an effort to try to, you know, work in a coalition to figure out the root cause, to try to be able to figure out, you know, from a supply standpoint, how you can sort of have an orderly, um, you know, distribution of those parts across the manufacturing community. And I frankly, the actions of NHTSA for the first time, using an authority that was provided in the TRED Act of 2000, which was the post-Fort Firestone um, um, situation, where NHTSA is looking to actually manage the recall you know, as the agency for the manufacturers. And because it's so extraordinary, you have all of this new activity and you have the usage of new authorities, um, but ultimately it's for safety. Let's get these bad airbags out of these people's vehicles and then let's move forward in making sure that a great technology, airbags. I mean, airbags have saved tens of thousands of lives. You know, we have an opportunity to make sure that people rely on it and feel safe with it and continue to, you know, of course, you know, support the use of that technology. Uh, ten different car companies have gotten together mm -hmm. to share all their knowledge as right. to why are these Takata airbags failing? Nobody right. knows the root cause of the problem. I've never seen anything like this before, and I think there's a former NHTSA person that's leading this investigation. Right. Yeah, he was acting administrator at the time. He was the chief of staff for Nicole Nason, David Kelly, who's an excellent, excellent um, safety leader, and you know, and I uh, and, and a 
wonderful person to lead, to lead that project. Uh, let me just give you a little perspective here. There's sort of a couple of things that are at play that we have to think about. The various iterations of the National Traffic and Safety Act, which originally passed in 1966, upgraded in 1970, and has been amended a few times, including with the Tread Act in 2000. You had a notion of the useful life of a vehicle as being much shorter than it is today. Now the average vehicle age is 11.4 years on the road. There's a real question about a number of these components with the Takata recall. Most of those vehicles are really, really old. I mean, they are close to well over 10 years of age. So it comes to a particular issue, a question now in terms of how do we build prospectively thinking about how long vehicles are going to be on service and when you have other problems with vehicles, sometimes it can be really bad problems like this airbag situation, is it because of the vehicles are holding any close to the end of service and you're going to be seeing more of these types of things? Or is it, you know, another reason for, you know, root cause? Because a vehicle out on the road suffering what it suffers on American roads and exposure and bad, and, you know, bumpy, you know, bumpy asphalt and hot weather, cold weather, all this kind of stuff, for 10, 15 years, we don't know exactly what the vehicle's going to do that far out. You can make your best guesses. And so this may be the beginning of actually reevaluation of our expectation policy-wise for the service. Right now, NHTSA and the federal regulations only require for a manufacturer to pay for remedy from 10 years of data manufacture. After that, if there is a recall remedy, the manufacturer could make the consumer pay for it. Why? Because the dependent number about 10 years is about right when a manufacturer really has that type of fiscal responsibility to the car. Is that the right number? I don't know. I think the Dakota situation brings that as a very fresh debate in terms of maybe we need a length of responsibility or maybe the answer is vehicle technology, regardless how advanced it may be, there is a notion of unforeseeability and it's because it's an old vehicle and maybe we need to rethink of how we deal with those situations. It's, it's lots, wow. of, lots wow. of hard questions. Yeah, very hard questions. Let me ask you about NHTSA initiating this recall. Sure. Well, is it right to do this from this? Of course you've got to recall these things. They're defective, they're dangerous, they can kill people. Right. But nobody knows the root cause. Right. And it's going to take several years before the pipeline can be filled with hopefully right. replacement airbags that truly are safe. Right. So why tell people, yeah, your car's got to be recalled, and by the way, come back in a couple of years. That's a very hard situation, and once again, not to get all lawyer. I feel like I'm doing the lawyer thing with you, Don, but it's, it's kind of a legal thing. From the time that NHTSA got its authority, it's always been about disclosure and informing the driver. Remember, when anytime there's been a recall happens, it's like you make the manufacturer provide a remedy. It's up to the consumer to decide whether or not he or she is going to bring their vehicle in to get fixed. And, you know, from our statistics, one out of four doesn't. Only 75% of the vehicles on average on the road actually get their free remedy. And, and that's when there's a serious And defect. that's when it's a really exactly right, it's on reasonable risk to safety. And, and so thinking about, you know, how do you tell a person you have a problem with your car? That's the first order of the law. We have to inform you so a consumer can make an analysis. Do I have a second car that I can drive if I don't feel safe with this vehicle? You know, and make other decisions. That's the, so that's number one level why the agency's doing it. It's their obligation to inform the consuming public. And then hopefully, I know they're trying to work on regionalizing the recall so the areas where they see the highest risk, the hot, humid states, that they get the parts sooner and then you try to fix the rest of the nation which has a lower risk exposure because they don't have the same factors lining that up too 
it's going to take a while, but I think you definitely want to let people know, it's like, look, you have a condition in your vehicle that you need to be aware of, it may take us a while to fix it, but to do nothing is, that, that's not an answer. Not acceptable. It's not right. acceptable. I've been telling people, tell me if I'm doing the right thing here, to disable their airbag. If they're truly worried about it, wear your seatbelt all the time, because mm -hmm. that'll protect you in just about everything anyway, mm -hmm. and disable that airbag. And there's a, a, a NHTSA website, safercar.gov, where you can go, because there's a legal, legal procedures you have to go right, through. Petition for to something to make something inoperative right. is how you could do it. So what do you think? Am I telling people the right thing? You know, there's a number of things that a lot of people are suggesting. I will give you what I okay. that I tell yeah, folks yeah, yeah. as former NHTSA administrator. You need to be in direct conversation with your manufacturer and your franchise dealer that you got your car and talk to them about this problem. They can give you several opportunities for solutions, and I'm sure maybe even that one may be one of them. But you made a great point about remember airbags are there are a supplemental restraint systems called SR. Supplemental. The first restraint system that you should always have on is that seatbelt. If you have that seatbelt on, you're most of the way home. That airbag supplements it. So, you know, yes, in theory, you could do that. My suggestion is talk to your manufacturer, go to your dealer, and figure, because there's lots of folks that they call in and it's like, oh, I'm not sure if we have the remedy yet. I've been hearing on the news, it's going to take a long time. They're like, nope, we can fix your car. We can get that old airbag and put a new one in. So, do that first, and then you can sort of go through, I think your suggestion, there's other things that people can do too as well. Okay, let's jump to another big recall, okay. the GM ignition switch. Sure. Totally different uh, scenario here in right. the sense that clearly there were people in General Motors who knew there was an issue here and buried it. What What's your whole read of this? How, how is this going to play out in the sense that did management really know and what culpability does the corporation have if you have a rogue group trying to hide a defect from top management. You know, the unfortunate thing is we've seen this fact pattern play out in varying degrees over the decades and, you know, and ultimately it's about safety culture and it's about doing the right thing. And the one thing I will say is that, you know, Mary Barra and her leadership of that organization, I know that for me when I was in office and then when I when she is when she became CEO right after I left office, that, you know, she has her eye on the ball in terms of making sure that that organization does the right thing safety-wise. That's the important thing. You know, there's going to be lots of issues facing GM from a liability standpoint. The U.S. attorney is clearly, you know, intimating is going to be taking some types of actions. And, and yes, even with the liability shield that they have because of the bankruptcy, you know, they have ongoing issues. And, you know, the, clearly with the special master and the, and the fund that they established, you know, you, there's one thing that we always talk about, you know, in safety, and especially as a former safety regulator, is that you would hope that every manufacturer makes that thoughtful investment up front because it always turns into a multi-billion dollar situation X years later. And believe me, if, if leadership of GM had any notion that it was going to evolve into something like this, you know, I'm sure they would have taken a number of actions in terms of how you deal with things downstream at lower levels of your management organization. And you know, I think that you know, Toyota has learned a lot from UA back in 2010 and made those changes. And those both companies have been through bruising changes. You know, but I think it tells lessons to the rest of the manufacturing community and to the regulator on how to be a better regulator. You learn through all of these things. You don't want to learn these lessons, but the goal is hopefully you don't have these problems anymore, and that, that's the ultimate outcome. And UA, which you refer to, of course, is unintended acceleration. acceleration. I apologize right. for yeah, the yeah. jargon. <laughs> Do you think that GM top management was aware of this ignition I switch have problem? I no idea. I mean, I really don't. I mean, I think ultimately it's one of these things where 
you know, I mean, the Volucas investigation and the other things that are going on, and I'm sure, you know, GM's own internal due diligence after the GM ignition uh, situation evolved. I really am not in a position to say who knew what when. I really am a results person as in, leadership took action once they get got their hands around it. They're going to pay a price and I think they recognize it, but I think that, you know, Mary Barra and her team now in terms of you know, the proactive steps on vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communications technology they've taken, you know, the efforts they've gone to try to get those recalled vehicles fixed using private investigators, using, you know, and doing all kinds of, using FedEx letters, you know, to try to get to those people that may have affected vehicles, you know, she's shown me that she's got the right stuff on safety. And so, that's my more important focus is that, how do you be a safety leader coming after something like this? Because, unfortunately, we've already lost people, the damage is already done, we have families to make whole, that's got to happen. But how do you make sure this ever happens again? And that's what I really appreciate the GM team right now. Yeah, well that's good to hear your viewpoint on them. But let's talk about recalls in general. Sure. I have never seen, forget the Takata, forget the GM ignition. Right, right. Everybody else is recalling everything at, at the drop of a hat. And I got to believe it's because of the Toyota UA, yeah. the GM ignition switch, now Takata. Every, no one wants to get caught in the crosshairs of the media right. or the, the legislators. Yeah, I mean, I think the issue that you always had, I mean, I think water finds its level. And I think right now, you to see the manufacturers responding to some pretty serious cues. For Toyota's unintended acceleration uh, situation, you know, my agency fined them the maximum for three particular incidences regarding that situation. First time. Biggest fines ever. Biggest fines ever at the time. I think Dr. Rosekind might take my record. Not the record <laughs> I necessarily want to keep, no, but right, the, or right. that the companies want to have, but right. I, I think I'm going to be eclipsed pretty soon. Yeah. But, you know, I think what you got out of it, though, was that companies realizing that those marginal jump ball recalls is like, ah, let's kind of wait and see. They're not taking that risk anymore. They're like, let's go ahead and jump on it and let's go ahead and do it, which is the right posture to take. I mean, it's something that, you know, my former boss at the department, Secretary LaHood and I talked about a lot, is putting the right signal out there for manufacturing to do the right thing. Now, if it isn't on the reasonable risk of safety and they have an argument for it, absolutely, let's come back and talk about it. But what you don't want people, manufacturers, you know, and folks that are in the safety organizations in these manufacturers doing is like, eh, let's kind of let it play out. Because that situation could end up injuring or killing somebody. You know, but there is due process involved. And it isn't like the agency comes knocking on the door and says, we think you should recall something, and then you, the manufacturer has no say. There still has to be the same due process and exchange of data and information, but if the manufacturer is going to be more focused on, let's get the problem fixed quickly. That's the best thing for everybody. We're already hearing some uh, CEOs at car companies complaining that, hey, th this is not sustainable. We cannot maintain this level of recall. We can't afford it. The, I mean, I think the Dakota recall is especially unique because of the size, scope, and scale, number one, the common part, number two, and also the position that it's in. It's also, it is an inflator that explodes in your face which sends shrapnel. There's very few safety systems or systems within the vehicle that create that kind of risk vector. I mean, I'm not an engineer, I'm, you know, humble caveman lawyer, but you know, from my from my years of running the agency, this is really unique. So I'm not sure if you're gonna see something like this ever again personally. And you know, but I say at the end of the day to having, you know, one third of the registered vehicles in America possibly, you know, in some state of recall. I would agree with the manufacturers, that's not sustainable. I would agree with the agency, with NHTSA. NHTSA would say it's not sustainable. The answer is, let's make sure that 
we get problems squared away before they get to that point, number one. But, you know, I think that you're, I think this is going to be an extraordinary moment. And I think you're going to follow, I think you're going to see the regular pattern, if you will, of how you manage recalls. There's going to be some differences. The one thing I will say, just as a small sidebar for your question, is how do you address getting people to take the free remedy? 75% of people get their cars fixed. That means 25% don't. And that's huge. And how do we get that fixed? Because to me, and I think Dr. Rosekind, the new NITS administrator, made an excellent point. The goal should be for all of us in the industry, let's get to 100% remedy. And that may mean having more responsibility on, on the part of the consumer to go get that car fixed versus just telling them and then maybe waiting and maybe not. But you know, I think that's another corollary to that as well. As you say, automakers are going to have to address these recalls mm -hmm. differently than they did in the past. They have. But what's your sense? Are we just going through a big flurry right now and it'll calm down, or is this the norm from here on out? I don't think this is the norm. I, I think that, you're, once again, I mean, even when, you know, my personal experience dealing with the unintended acceleration issues with Toyota, it really felt like, when is this going to stop? I mean, you know, it was on the front pages of the newspaper, major newspapers for weeks, and there was major exposés written, and, and then, you know, you know, I had to go out and hire NASA to come in and do an evaluation of the vehicle. Secretary LaHood was deeply involved in it. And then once we kind of had Toyota kind of, you know, we've sort of found the answers that, you know, were the answers, they just kind of fell into, fell, fell into rhythm, you know, once again. I, I would hazard to guess that Takata's going to take a while, but I think once Takata's sort of run to ground to as much as it can be, things will return to some regular order in terms of the recall process, because vehicle quality is so much higher, that feeds right. into it as well. Right. Let's talk about more fun stuff. All right. Let's talk about some of these connected car technologies and ultimately maybe autonomous cars, but sure. let's stick with the, with the connected car first, sure. because once we get cars talking to each other electronically, we might be able to stop all accidents from happening. I will tell you there is, I mean, talking about connected vehicle technology, we're talking about using the digital short range communications or DSRC as one bucket, something that I was intimately involved in when I was administrator. And the future of automated vehicles, I think that they are sort of wed together to have the ultimate sort of safety suite of technologies. But going to uh, connected vehicles, you know, the one thing that um, the NHTSA research found uh, was that when fully deployed, like every vehicle has it, and they can all talk to each other, that it could address up to 80% of crash scenarios involving unimpaired drivers. Eight zero percent Just for cars talking to each other and giving safety signals, like warnings to the driver, 80%. Not even controlling Not the car. Not even controlling, just saying, wow. hey, you know, hey, there's a car about to run the red light, you should stop. Right. I mean, huge, wonderful technology. But marry that with automated vehicles where that DSRC signal I was talking about just earlier, it allows you to see beyond line of sight. So now you have automated vehicles that use LiDAR systems and arrays which are purely line of sight. They see the world around them. You pair that with a communication technology which allows them to see beyond line of sight and helps them in their predictive algorithms about what may happen, it's, it's bang up awesome. I, I mean, I, I'm as excited as you are about it. It's just great stuff. Of course, what the industry worries about is liability. Sure. They're all talking sure. about who's going to be liable and right. what do you think, or how do you think that's going to play out? You know, actually, just actually gave a presentation about that um, to, to the conference. 
liability systems always evolve with technology and standard of care. And I don't think that there's ever been an impediment that's purely, you can say, because of liability, this could not happen. I will say, I, I gave an example to the audience that when I was a Senate staffer before I became NHTSA administrator, I was, in a, I was in a, um, at a test facility at one of the manufacturers back in 2003, and they came to me and the other Senate staff that were visiting and said, look at this wonderful technology where the car will break for itself. And it was amazing technology. It's like, we will never deploy it because we need to have liability protection before we could deploy this. It's just too risky. Yeah, now we see a lot of commercials where you know, there's you know, companies advertising their driver assist systems, which has, what? Crash imminent braking and lane keeping assist systems. So there's a tipping point where the technology is rigorous enough, the business case is there, and they will manage liability issues. I think automated driving, even though it is, you know, active safety systems is what they call these things, on steroids, it's integrated and all and a lot of a lot of you know, artificial intelligence and machine intelligence behind it, I think it will evolve in the same way. There might be have some cases going to court and some changes in precedent. There's lots of different state laws to deal with, but I think that automated vehicles are going to happen despite that. Yeah, I would think so too. I mean, the, the safety payoff is too great. You know, if you look, and you know the numbers better than I do, but on a global basis, I think there's 1.2 million people killed every year. Absolutely right. There's something like uh, 30 to 50 million injured badly enough to go to the hospital. I mean, what are we waiting for? It's always, unfortunately, it's a thing, it's a, I really hate using this term, but it's always about a cost and benefit because the value of individual mobility, being able to get in a car and drive on a road, you assume a lot of risk because you are partners with everybody else that's driving around you. You're subject to the conditions of the weather. You're subject to the conditions of the road. So you absorb a lot of risk every day. And every new safety technology, no matter how great the benefit, it does have an added cost to the car. And that's the reason why you see, like, you know, entry-level vehicles, which frankly, in my opinion, probably need those safety technologies more than anything else. Those are the ones that teenagers are driving, young parents are driving. It, if you add those safety technologies on to such a great degree, you price people out of owning a vehicle. Now we're in a universe where you now you have Uber and you have Zipcar, so maybe vehicle ownership, that issue may be a thing in the past, but that's always been the issue of government. You know, if you mandate so many things, you may actually eliminate people from having the ability to have a car. So you try to find the things that have the most benefit for the most reasonable cost. Automated vehicles are going to be expensive in the, at the beginning, but the hope is they get more developed, you have economies of scale, it gets cheaper and it gets pushed down to those entry-level vehicles, what I call democratizing safety. That's always been the model. I'm not as satisfied with it because I want sort of everybody to be equally safe right now, but that's just not how the world works. And especially when you see vehicles in developing economies around the world. I mean, their vehicles are nowhere near as safe in the United States. But if you put American safety standards on, say, a vehicle and take your pick of a developing country, those people that are buying cars wouldn't be able to. And those governments make decisions. So that's the long political studies answer to it. But I'm with you. 
we got to get this stuff cheap, we got to get it right, and want to get it made available to as many people as possible. It'll save a lot of people's lives. Couldn't the insurance companies play a little bit of a role in this? That if you have the safety technology, why not get a discount on your insurance? That helps pay for a little bit of it. At That's least. great. I mean, look, we've seen. You know, I'm, I remember back in you know back in the I guess it was the 80s when you used to get uh, discounts for analog brakes on your car. You, I would hope that insurance companies, once they got the data and saw that it proves out, that they would be one of those positive financial incentives to help encourage people to get these technologies. I think it's a good point, but ultimately it's actuarial tables. Does the, you know, does the system actually work? Are you seeing results? And you know, that's, the, you know, that's, that's a question for the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety to be able to get that data out of those guys to talk about that. And, you know, and, and, you know, but I agree with you. I think there should be a lot of incentives. I would love to see, frankly, you know, now that I'm no longer in government, I can say these types of things. I would love to <laughs> That's why I have it on the show. <laughs> I would love to see, frankly, there be a safety incentive, you know, frankly, at the federal and state level to build, encourage people to buy these technologies because 32,000 people losing their lives a year on the roads is one of the largest public health and safety issues facing America. If we can get that down to zero, think of the, I mean, you're saving billions and billions and billions of dollars and you're saving thousands upon thousands of families, lots of grief. I think is worth an investment. Uh, look, I've heard some people say this could solve our health care issues. It could. That we're going to have a surplus of hospital beds and doctors if this all happens. I, I mean, there's so many benefits, but I mean, there's a lot of equities that you have to weigh in government. And I, being a former administrator, I appreciate that as much as Dr. Rosekind is appreciating it now. You know, but if, you know, if I had a magical pen and I could have a signature of what the government would invest in, I would love to see more investment on the safety side to encourage people to fix their cars when they have a defect, to be able to buy these safety technologies. I think right. it's a good investment. Because the payoff will be immediate. The payoff is huge. It's huge. Okay, we're down to the end here, but yes, i got to hear your thoughts on cybersecurity. Ah. Because as we talk connected cars, autonomous cars, Invariably, when I talk to people out in the public, this is one of the first things that comes up. And actually, there's a, a, a newly crafted letter from the Congress, you know, asking the automakers about this very issue as well. It's important. I mean, but you know, the notion is, how do you harden a vehicle to make sure that you, you know, you can never make anything impervious. The Pentagon can't stop from being hacked. I mean, that's just so. Let's just level set. You know, there will be incursions happening. The issue is recognizing them quickly and stopping them. That's really the, the core to a great program. And I think one of the efforts that the automakers is undertaking is they're creating an auto ISAC or an information sharing and analysis center where you actually have the group of automakers and other stakeholders share information about breaches and attacks that they've, that they've seen on their systems so it warns other automakers to be prepared for it so you don't have something that, you know, bad pun, goes viral <laughs> you know, across right. the fleet. But as you're getting more interdependence between vehicles because of connected vehicle technology, as you're getting into automated vehicle technology, the notion of actually having somebody take over the vehicle without having to touch it is a really scary thing. Right now, you need to have some proximity to or direct contact with the, the CAN bus, the little, the actual you know, computer machine in the car. The central nervous system. The central nervous system in the car. You got to get to it right now. There may be a day where you may not need to get to it physically or even be within 500 feet of it. You could, be, you could have a satellite and attack it. And I think the automakers are preparing for that day and the Congress is asking some very great questions. I think you raise a great point. ISACs, where everybody's sharing ideas, mm -hmm. that's a key way to do it. Yes, sir. David Strickland, we're out of time. Man, this has been terrific talking well, with you. you. What a fascinating discussion. Love your viewpoint. Well, thank you very much. And I really appreciate this. It's been a wonderful opportunity and uh, have a great rest of the show. Okay, thank you so much. Thank really you. appreciate it. All right. Want to thank all of you for having tuned in.
Underwriting for the production of Auto Lime this week has been provided by Auto Line is brought to you in part by the commercial vehicle brands of Tenneco, pioneering global ideas for cleaner air and quieter, smoother, and safer transportation. Ford Warner, developing advanced technologies specifically aimed at reducing emissions, increasing fuel economy, and improving performance. Our award-winning innovations extend from turbocharging and cooling systems to friction materials and diesel cold start technology. Built on a century-long reputation of innovation and reliability, we have the track record that proves our technology can help meet the challenges of the commercial truck and off-highway industry. Deloitte's Automotive Group is at the forefront, driving transformation and tackling complex challenges. Whether you are interested in globalizing operations, optimizing supply chains, mitigating enterprise risk, or driving innovation, Deloitte can help develop solutions that create long-lasting value. To learn more about Deloitte's Automotive Group, visit us online at deloitte.com backslash US backslash automotive.